your Bibles to Acts 21. Acts 21. We're going to be considering this morning Acts 21, verse 27, all the way down through the middle of chapter 22. From this passage, we learn to trust God's providence enough to be both courageous and wise. You and I are to trust God's providence so that we may be both courageous and wise. Let's ask for God's help. Lord, we love you this morning. We now open your word with humility, knowing that God is speaking to us. May we be humbled before that. May we recognize the truths in your word, and by your spirit and grace, may we change. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, we are coming now to the close of the book of Acts. It's just a few chapters away, and as we've progressed through this journey, we have learned that, that Acts is really a, a story. It is a narrative of how the good news of Jesus Christ transformed people. And not just one small group of people in one specific geographic region, but how the word went out from Jerusalem to Judea into Samaria and into the uttermost parts of the earth and how that message of Jesus Christ transformed Everywhere that it went. We've seen in the book of Acts a group of people who themselves were transformed by the message of Jesus Christ. And because of that message became so committed that they were willing to lay down even their own lives. Starting with Stephen first but not stopping with him. In order to give the message of Jesus Christ. It was so consuming It was so all-important that the gospel went out at the hands of those who were indeed brave people who gave the message of Jesus Christ and sometimes wrote that message in their very blood. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 10, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless. The idea there is is innocent, untainted, pure as doves. And in fact, the passage before us this morning here in Acts 21 and 22 is really in many ways an illustration of what Jesus told his disciples. I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So so the call is to be both wise and innocent. Pure, holy, but also wise. In the third century... Cyprian of Carthage stood in the marketplace calling out to people, I am a Christian. There's no need to torture me. I confess it openly. And then he proceeded to insult their gods. He says, I destroy them, not in secret, but openly, publicly, in the marketplace where your rulers can hear. If your gods are really gods and have divine power, let them take vengeance on me. It's been said, um, actually by, by Sanders, who uh, men, the men are going to be reading a book by J. Oswald Sanders this semester. He says, a great deal more failure is the result of an excess of caution 
than of bold experimentation. The frontiers of the kingdom of God were never advanced by men and women of caution. And we see that in our passage this morning, that Paul, perhaps the premier missionary of all the ages, was not a man timid or afraid. That in fact he did trust God's providence. He trusted them enough, he trusted God's providence enough to be both courageous and wise. Well, we see a few things. In fact, specifically, we see three things that we're going to make some observations from um, this morning. A narrative like this, in fact, really any narrative, is so rich with illustration, so rich with lessons that there are many different lessons we could point out. But I want to just point out a few things this morning. First of all, I want us to see this timely deliverance because it reminds us of God's providence. We said at the beginning we're to trust God's providence, and that is what we see here in this passage. So I invite your attention to chapter 21, beginning in verse 27. If you remember the context, Paul has participated in a Jewish ceremony with the attempt of, of suppressing the opposition of the Jewish leaders. We see in verse 27, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. So in other words, they're accusing him of, of opposing the God's chosen people, of opposing the temple, of opposing the law. We considered the last week this is an unfair accusation. And furthermore, he has brought Greeks into the temple and has filled this holy place. Now they assume that, verse 29, parenthetically, because they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city whom they supposed he had brought into the temple, right? So you, you were willing to walk down the street with a Gentile, so you must be so bold as to bring him right into the temple, which had not happened, but that was the accusation. And so this mob grabs onto Paul. And in verse 33, all of the city was disturbed. The people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. So we now have an angry mob that is, that is provoked to physical violence against Paul. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So, there is, so verse 31, the word reaches the Roman cohort, which was in the castle of Antonia. This tower overlooked the temple. And so probably when the news came up, to the commander, it literally came up to him. It, someone ran up the stairs, one of the soldiers ran up the stairs to the commander uh, telling him that there is, there is unrest in the city, there is a, a mob gathering, and so immediately the Roman soldiers exit their barracks and make their way down to the front of the temple. It, the troops would have rushed down the stairs to the temple area. They were readily at hand because they knew that when there was unrest, this was the epicenter of where this would be taking place. And so they come down to quell this disturbance. There are things going on in our country right now that are, 
I would say probably unprecedented in my lifetime, but they aren't completely new, right? The church has dealt with these things before. In this passage, you have racial unrest, you have violence, you have a dangerous, even deadly riot. You have the local authorities rushing in to take control of the situation. I mean, this, the, the, what we see around us in our country is, is nothing that history and the history of the church has not seen before. Well, Paul's life is very clearly in peril. They are in the midst of a mob that is bent on killing him. But we see here that just in time, the soldiers step in. Verse 32, when the commander and the soldiers, uh, when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating him. And the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one and another, some, uh, uh, some another. And when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. I mean, so can you see the picture? <laughs> there's, this, there's this mob. There's people yelling at each other. The commander comes into the situation. The mob steps back, but there still is such a ruckus that he cannot figure out what is going wrong, what is taking place. I used to have a friend uh, in law enforcement that I would ride with on a regular basis and, and mentored me uh, in, in law enforcement. He, uh, he told me, he had this little saying, He's like, if the stories don't match, everybody's lying. You know, you go to a scene and nobody agrees on anything. Well, that's, that's something like what's happening here. There's this ruckus. People are arguing with each other. No one is agreeing on who this Paul is and what the ruckus is for. So, so the, the answer that the, the commander comes up with is just take Paul out of the situation. So they, they grab him, really saving his life. In verse 35, when they reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. So he's being taken into kind of this protective custody. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, away with him. And they didn't mean just, you know, take him somewhere else. They wanted his death. It's interesting to watch in the narrative of the book of Acts, how God divinely orchestrates things. And Paul had near-death experience after experience. Sometimes Paul barely dodges death. He barely escapes impending death. But God is at work in all of that. Even when a believer does die, even when someone is martyred, which we've seen in the book of Acts as well, God is using it to providentially orchestrate his plan for the gospel to be fueled forward. And guess what? End of the story, spoiler alert, Paul ends up dying. Now, we don't see that in the book of Acts, but we know from history that eventually God's work through Paul was completed. And Paul was killed as a martyr. But what we see in all of this is God's providence. If God chooses for him to be delivered, he's delivered. If God has decided uh, one's work is done, he's taken out of the picture. But God's work continues. What a joy it is for us as believers to know 
that we are, we are safe in God's plan. We won't die a premature death. Oh, it may seem premature to us. It, it may seem like that wasn't my plan. But all in all, we know that God is in control. Well, if we can trust him in matters of life and death, should we not also trust him in the day-to-day? -day? In the circumstances that come into our path that we don't like, that we don't want, even in those things, God is in control. We ought to remind ourselves of that often. When we face circumstances that are difficult, that are painful, that are uncomfortable, that God is in control. We ought to meditate on the truths of God's providence, His sovereignty, His, His rule over all things, and take comfort in knowing nothing escapes His notice. Well, Paul is confident. He is, he is comfortable giving the gospel even in a difficult situation because of God's providence. But let's consider the fact that because of this, he is now bold. A bold testimony that is given here challenges us to be courageous. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to observe a hostile crowd. There's been a few times in my EMS career I've been in the midst of some dicey situations. Now, I've never been where Paul was, my life being directly threatened, but I've been in a few crowds that, that concerned me. Like, this crowd could turn really bad really fast. Recently, um, when the whatever you want to call them, the, the riots, the protests turned, uh, in, here in Austin turned to um, destruction of property. Our first call for my company was right on 6th Street. And in fact, um, one of my guys, actually his wife, was real concerned about him going downtown in the midst of all of this. So we arrive on 6th Street, we drive our rig through this crowd who's, who's shouting and and yelling and holding up signs, but nothing destructive at that point. And, and we come to this wall of police officers who had shut down 6th Street. And of course, they had us come on in. And 6th Street's like a ghost town. Like, there's nobody on 6th Street. And we have a wall of, oh, I don't know, a few hundred of Austin Police Department between us and the crowd. I was in the safest spot in all of Austin at that point, right? I mean, they've got the they've got the 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 riot the guys out there in all their riot gear. They've got the 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 horses out there, and we were just fine. Um, I bet Paul had a real sense of assurance when he got to the point where he was surrounded by Roman soldiers, swords drawn, right? But what does he do? He, he throws himself back into the fray. Did you, did you notice this in, in this passage? So we're in, in verse 37. Paul is about to be led to the barracks. He said to the commander, may I speak to you? He replied, the commander replied, can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? All right, so there's been a recent event that was intended to be a violent insurrection. 
the commander is assuming that's who Paul is, that he's the leader of that insurrection. But Paul's like, no, 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 you, you, got, you got the wrong guy. Verse 39, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no, no mean city, no minor, unimportant city. And I implore you, watch this, permit me to speak to the people. Okay, Paul, you just got rescued from a crowd that wanted to kill you. And now you're asking for me, hold on, I want to talk to him. I mean, Paul is, he is bold. It, it just amazes me sometimes. What does Proverbs 28 say? The righteous are as bold as a lion. You know, we're tempted to be fearful. We are tempted in our broadcast of the gospel to, to pull back. We fear rejection, social ostracism, mockery, maybe even something as bad as employment discrimination for our gospel witness. Yet here's Paul in peril of his life. And in verse 39, he says, hey, I, I want to preach real quick. Let, let me talk to this crowd. You know, the crowd that just wanted to kill him. C.S. Lewis said, when the church ceases to defend something, the community begins to believe that it can't be defended. So the beginning of chapter 21 is the beginning of Paul's sermon there on the steps near the temple. Look at verse 1. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense. Now that word defense is an interesting word. Some of you really enjoy learning about apologetics. That's actually the Greek word that is here, the apologia. So Paul says in verse 1, he says, men and brethren, hear my apologetic, essentially, before you now. And then what follows? Verse 2, all the way down through verse 21, is Paul's testimony. Now, I'm not going to take the time to go verse by verse through Paul's testimony. You've heard it. You know what it is. You, we've seen it in the book of Acts, and we've seen Paul give it several times. So Paul says, I'm going I'm to give you my apologetic. I'm going to give you my defense. Let me tell you my story of how Jesus Christ changed everything for me. May I just say to you that your testimony is one of the most powerful things you have in your arsenal of giving the gospel. People like to talk about, about, about theory, and, and that's good, it's important. People like to talk about the, the doctrines, and, and those are important. But, but when you tell your story, you can give both the truth of the gospel message while illustrating it in living color. I knew a pastor who <laughs> he used to get he used to just enjoy going into public places and finding other believers and using those conversations like this. He was one time in a doctor's office and he struck up a conversation with someone kind of across the way in the waiting room. Now, there were other people sitting around. And as the conversation progressed, he learned that this person was a fellow believer. And so he said, oh, well, tell me your story about how you came to faith in Christ, <laughs> right? 
And then the person begins to tell their story. And he said, let me tell you my story. And, he, and so both of them are sitting there in this doctor's office with five or six people, captive audience, can't go anywhere, telling their stories about how they came to faith in Christ. Now, who can argue with that? I mean, you're just telling what happened to you. You're, you're telling the story of how you came to believe. And boy, you can weave the gospel into that loud and clear. This is who I used to be. This is what I used to believe. This is, this is what I used to think. And, and then God's word came, and this is how the message was brought to me. And what I learned was, right, you can give the whole gospel and, and never deviate from, I'm just telling my story here. I'm just telling what happened to me. That's what Paul does. Paul says, let me tell you my story. This is my apologetic. And so as he goes through the first part of chapter 22, he brings to the conclusion the, the calling that he has had. In verse 21, in chapter 22, verse 21, he says, uh, God says to him, I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And then in verse 22, they listened to him until this word. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Right? The, the, the racial tension is such that his mere mention of ministry to those outside their sphere is enough to reignite the violence. And now they want him dead. Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes, they threw dust in the air. The commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks. So let's go back to plan A, guys. All right. <laughs> this is obviously not working. This is not calming the crowd down. Uh, we had them quiet for a little while, but uh, that's, that's not going not gonna to be a good, a good plan. So Paul makes a strategic appeal. Notice verse 22. They listened to him. Uh, they... they they took him away. The commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging. So basically what they're going to do is they're going to take whips and they're going to use torture to extract from him the information that they, they needed from him. And this would have been not uncommon in that day. And as they bound him, verse 25, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And you can almost hear brakes screeching in the text at this point. All right. When the centurion heard that, verse 26, he went to the commander saying, Take care for what you do. This man is a Roman. And the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? He, he said, Yes. Now let me explain to you what is happening here. Roman citizens had special privileges. If you were a Roman citizen, you could not be taken into captivity and you certainly could not be scourged without adequate basis. And so here they had just bound him with chains and they were threatening to beat him. Understand that even the threat to beat him, being a Roman citizen, was illegal. These guys could get in real hot water. Now I notice that there's several kind of advantages that Paul has in this text. Backtrack with me just a little bit. In ver go back to verse 37. Um, excuse me, chapter 21. 
verse 37. Paul was about to be led into the barracks. He said, the commander, may I speak? He replied, you can speak Greek. So he speaks to the Greek-speaking Roman soldier in his own language, and he is surprised by it. Uh, the tribune, the commander, is, is a little taken aback that he knows Greek. The actual syntax here is very polite, but it is an impersonal construct construction, and the commander is stunned to hear someone speaking in cultured Greek from some guy that he thought was an assassin. Um, the actual Greek commander's name was Lysias, a Greek name, and so it's fair to assume that this was his native tongue. He recognized immediately that Paul had great command of the Greek language. But then in verse 40, look, he turns to the crowd when they had given permission. Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language. So Paul now demonstrates a command of another language, a Hebrew dialect, likely Aramaic, which was a derivative of, Hebrews, uh, of Hebrew. Um, and the crowd immediately grows quiet, which is interesting. Um, it is said in India, I don't know this from personal experience, but it is said that the use of Sanskrit in India can cause an entire audience to grow immediately quiet. Um, there's such a national pride that people feel about their own native tongue. And so because of his background, Paul was able to pivot and begin to speak in Aramaic. Now we also know that he had a background as a Pharisee. So he would have spoken the the scribal dialect of Hebrew as well. He might have even spoken Latin. Who knows how many other languages and dialects were in Paul's arsenal. Notice verse 39. I see another advantage that Paul has. He says what? I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. If you're using an English standard version, it says no obscure city. Hey, I'm from a place of prestige is basically what he is saying. And then I explained already in verses in over in chapter 22, Roman citizens were given this protection of certain rights that were not afforded to everyone. Um, and so now when they find this out, they're very nervous. He asks a question politely. He asks if scourging is, is legal. Um, scourging him, even taking him into captivity without a trial, was a grievous offense against a Roman citizen. I mean, people had been banished from the empire for less. And so the soldiers realized the seriousness of what has taken place here. After he asks the question and the attention comes to the Roman citizen, uh, the, the, the Roman commander, verse 29, I'm back in chapter 22, verse 29, immediately those that were about to examine him withdrew from him. The soldiers kind of walked off the job, like, yeah, I'm not going there, right? I, am, I don't, I don't want to be anywhere near this. This could be major trouble. Even the commander himself was afraid, verse 29, after he found out he was a Roman because he had bound him. 
Now, there are a number of lessons that I think could be derived from this. But as I was meditating on it this week, um, this is what came to my mind. Paul is greatly privileged. There's a lot of talk right now in the United States about this word privilege. In particular, there's a lot of talk right now about, quote-unquote, white privilege. Now, that phrase may trouble you. Frankly, it doesn't trouble me at all. I am keenly aware that I enjoy some privileges. Perhaps some privileges that I may not even readily recognize. It's a sad reality, but certainly it is very possible that I enjoy privileges because of the hue of my skin. I don't know. But that's not my only privilege. Statistically, the number one, the single biggest predictor of positive social outcomes is being raised by a two-parent family. I was fortunate enough to be raised by both my mom and dad. That's a privilege. I'm a citizen of the United States. That's a privilege. And that provides me a host of other privileges that flow from it. Remember a few years ago, there was all this protest about the, the 1%? And the irony of it was that the people that were protesting the 1%, globally speaking, are part of the 1%. I mean, even the poorest amongst us in the United States have it better than the poor around the world, by far. That's a privilege. I'm able-bodied. That's a privilege. I had the opportunity to be educated. That's a privilege. I could go on and on, and, and if you think about it, you could too. You enjoy a host of privileges. I enjoy a host of privileges. That's not bragging. I didn't do anything to deserve most of those things that I just named. But God in his mercy has seen fit to afford me some privileges. So what should our response be to that? Not a source of pride, but it should be gratitude for God's blessing. And then beyond that, secondly, it should be using those privileges as opportunities to love God and to love my neighbor. The advantages that we have been given have been given to us that we may in turn glorify God and then bless our fellow man. Blessing our fellow man, of course, first means that we are faithful to the gospel, that we give them the greatest news that can be given. But there are a host of other ways that I can bless my fellow man as well through the privileges, through the, the blessings that God has given me. I notice Paul here has no qualms about using his privileges. And actually, as we progress in the text, we're going to continue to see that he, he uses those privileges. Uh, if you're taking notes, I'm sorry, the last point didn't get up, make it up on the screen. A strategic appeal teaches us to conduct ourselves wisely. A strategic appeal teaches us to conduct ourselves wisely. 
Paul was put in this situation and recognized the opportunities he had. He took advantage of those opportunities. He leveraged those opportunities as a means of advancing the gospel. You'll even see here that Paul uses the legal recourse that he has. As we are privileged to live in a country that is governed by laws, that is governed by the Constitution, at least for the time being, um, we have the opportunity to use legal means to push back against injustice, to push back against restrictions to the gospel. I, I, I see here Paul wisely appealing to the legal means that he has, even to protect himself. Paul is wise in the way he conducts himself. We too should be wise. We should conduct ourselves in a way that is pure and that is right, but in a way that is wise. Using the opportunities that we have for the cause of the gospel. Paul here pivots on his heel and he says, I want to talk to this crowd. And then he speaks to them in their own language. Maybe it's a language that you have command of. Maybe it's a social circle that you are a part of. Maybe it is some sort of a, a subculture or a common interest, but there are people that you can reach with the gospel that your fellow believers might not have the opportunity to reach. Who are those people that you have the chance to speak into their lives? And are you seeing that as an opportunity for the gospel? As we come to Paul's testimony, some of you have a powerful testimony. Some of you, for a number of years, were apart from God. And as God worked in your heart, you have a powerful testimony that you can give to other people. Are you using that as a means to give the gospel? We can be brave. We should be wise. And we can do that because it is governed by God's providence. Trust God's providence to be both courageous and wise. Father, we thank you for the time that we've had in your word this morning. As we continue to meditate on it even this week, may we do so in a way that changes us, that shapes us in the image of your dear Son.